morning. Good morning. All right, so you guys, um, this is, a, well, happy 4th of July weekend, by the way. I know it's not on the weekend, but happy 4th to you. Um, it's beautiful weekend this weekend. All right, so this morning we're going to continue in our book of Hosea. We're going to continue. Hosea, by the way, if you want to find it, it's, it's going to be in your Bibles right after the book of Daniel. Um, so it's right after the book of Daniel. Um, last week we found out that um, Hosea is really written towards his uh, God's country, Israel, his bride Israel, and as she's strayed away from God, and she has made other gods her gods. And so in the book of Hosea, God tells his prophet to go marry a promiscuous woman who is going to uh, be adulterous. And he's doing it for a reason. Now, this isn't forever. This is only for Hosea. And he's telling Hosea to do this in order to illustrate his relationship with his bride Israel and how they keep on going to false gods and committing adultery against him. And so that's the basis. And I said that last week I said we're going to preach four sermons in this series. There's 14 chapters. The reason why we're doing four sermons is because really there is a lot of repeating, repetition. We learn through repetition. And in the Bible or in the book of Hosea, God is repeating this message over and over them so that they get it. All right, so we also decided to uh, do a memory verse. Now, if you haven't done so, after the sermon this morning, go outside and find one of these little flyers on the table. This is um, uh, the book of Hosea, and we're doing a memory verse uh, that basically summarizes the book of Hosea. Now, we chose Proverbs uh, chapter 3, verse 11 through 12, which obviously isn't out of Hosea, but the, the interesting aspect of God's discipline in order to bring back his people is very much what Hosea is about. Um, So if you wouldn't uh, mind, let's all repeat this memory verse. And when you take this home with you, you can put it on your table and memorize it with your family or friends. Uh, So let's uh, repeat this together. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, let's all say it together. My child, do not despise discipline from the Lord and do not loathe his rebuke. For the Lord disciplines those whom he loves just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. All right, thank you. Mankind has an idolatry problem. It's not just Old Testament Israel. It's not, it's all of us. All mankind has an idolatry problem. What is idolatry? It's putting anything in the place of God in our lives that's not a true God. So it's putting any other God in our hearts where only the one true God belongs. And um, idolatry actually makes us do very dumb things. It reminds me of a movie that I watched in uh, about 2000, came out in 2000. It was called Castaway. Have any of you guys seen the movie Castaway? All right, it stars Tom Hanks, and he, he plays the character of Chuck. And you know this, how the story goes. Uh, Tom Hanks, uh, who's Chuck, is, is actually working for FedEx, and he f- is flying on a plane to go consult uh, some other aspect of FedEx's company across overseas. And they're flying over the Pacific Ocean. The plane goes down, and Tom Hanks is the only one who survives, and he finds himself on a deserted island. 
And he swims back to the airplane wreckage and he gets all the packages from the airplane wreckage. In one package he finds an ice skate and uses the blade to cut open coconuts and everything. In another package he finds a volleyball. And the volleyball's name is Wilson because Wilson Volleyball. And we find that throughout the movie years go by and Tom has, or Chuck, I'm sorry, has has put a face on Wilson and some hairdo, and he's talking to Wilson throughout the entire movie, and we get that. I mean, like loneliness, we, we could see that. Like, by the way, this movie is a big apologetic for the reason why we need community. Isolation isn't good. And so at, towards the end of the movie, we find that Tom Hanks or, or Chuck has been on the island for years and comes to gather materials to build a raft gets off of the island and he has his friend Wilson with him, his volleyball head, and he mounts it on the raft and a storm comes. And in the middle of the storm, Wilson is blown off the raft and we see, we see Chuck fall off the raft towards him. He's got a rope tied to his ankle and Wilson's just too far and the rope won't let him go. And so he gets back on the raft and he weeps and he wails, and he says, I'm so sorry, Mr. Wilson, I'm so, and he's crying, and all of us, when we're watching this, we're thinking, I, I mean, that, we're just feeling it for him, we're like, poor Chuck, man, his only friend, and then, and we stop ourselves, and we're like, that's stupid, what are we saying, and we, we get it, but, but at the same time, we're like, the reaction doesn't merit, uh, it's a volleyball, man, like, come on, and, you know, in a very real sense, this is what we do when we worship something that's not God. When we worship false gods, we don't function correctly. We respond in a way that is, is, not, is not how we should respond. Sometimes we're angry when we shouldn't be angry. Sometimes we're short with people when we shouldn't be. There's always a false idol drifting around when we are not reacting appropriately, and we see that. But not only that, but, but we also are putting things in the place of God where he is the one who deserves it. So we're not only becoming unhealthy ourselves, but we're disobeying God. But there's great news. God does deliver people from idolatry. And that's what we're going to see here this morning in Hosea chapter 3. So turn with me to Hosea chapter 3 this morning. And I want to show you, by the way, chapter 3 is the central chapter of the entire book. It, is, it summarizes the entire book of Hosea. Even though there's 14 chapters, Hosea 3 it encapsulates, encapsulates the whole thing. So how does God deliver us from idolatry? Well, first, God shows us value when we feel valueless. The first step to God... Delivering us from idolatry is God will show us value when we have treated ourselves with no value, when we have devalued ourselves. Now, here's what happens. God shows up to Hosea, the prophet, and he says to Hosea, I want you to go get your wife. Now, his wife has left him. We don't know how long it's been. It might have been years. His wife has left him and the three kids. You remember the three kids weren't even his kids? She had kids from other men and, uh, because she was unfaithful, and he, she has left him and the kids and gone to uh, prostitute herself again. And so God shows up to Hosea and says, I want you to go get your wife. And in the process here, he's going to show us how his value um, 
causes us to come back to him when we are valueless. Look at, look at what happens in verses 1 through 2. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. All right, we'll stop there and finish that in a minute. Sometimes when we worship, no, it's not sometimes, all the times. When we worship something that was never meant to be God, and there's only one God. When we put any God in between us and God and worship that God alone, it inevitably gives us pleasure at first and then makes us a slave in the end. It's very true. Whatever we give ourselves to that is not God will enslave us. And that's what we first find here. God tells Hosea, go get your wife back. And when he goes to get his wife back, he finds that she's actually become a slave of someone. And he has to pay to get her back. And idolatry always does this. By the way, there's many ways it does this, but I want to focus on two today. Sometimes we worship the false god of pleasure. We actually think that um, the purpose of life is to enjoy life. And when we believe the purpose of life is to enjoy life, a lot of the times what we'll do is we will take the pursuit of pleasure and put it over God. And when we do that, at first, we have a great time. And eventually, it enslaves us. You see, I know this because Jesus shares a story of the prodigal son. You remember this parable? This parable is in Luke chapter 15. And I'm going to summarize it for you. I'm not going to do it verbatim, just off of memory here. But in Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives him a parable and says, there, there was a man, a father, who had two sons. He had a younger son and he had an older son. And the younger son came to the father and said, Dad, give me my inheritance. And this was awkward because inheritance happens after someone dies. The son's asking for his inheritance while his dad's still alive. His dad decides to give him the inheritance. The son, the younger son, leaves the house. And the text says, Jesus says, that he, he went to a foreign country and he lived raucously. He lived recklessly. He lived uh, and he squandered all of his dad's money. Later on, the older brother said that he spent his money on alcohol and prostitutes. And so we get this idea that this young son has gone to a foreign country, taken all the inheritance, and he is partying. He is living it up. And then Jesus says, one day, he runs out of money. And he finds himself alone. And he's so hungry that he forces a farmer to hire him. That's what the text says. He's forcing a job to happen. And so the farmer hires him and And he's now feeding pigs for a living. And he's so hungry that he is longing for the carob pods that the pigs are eating. And we get this idea that the pigs are living better than the sun. All because he chose to worship pleasure over God. Then it says, Jesus says, that the son thought to himself, I know what I'll do. My father's servants 
eat better than me. My father's servants are treated good by my dad. I will go back home. I will confess my sin and repent to him, and I will ask him, hire me like one of your servants to pay me a wage, and I will serve you all my life. And the son goes back home, and you know what happens. When he gets there, the father's been waiting and watching for him. And as he comes up the road, the father bolts to him. And he says, Father, I have sinned against you. Make me like one of your servants. And the father stops him and says, go get him shoes. Go get him a robe. Go get him my signet ring. Let's slaughter the fattened calf and have a party for my son who once was lost is now returned. Remember that story. That story is about a guy who is just like us, that puts pleasure before God and pleasure enslaved him. You know, such a guy, what happens is, is that we have choices when we, I've been there, we have choices when we're in the ditch. Three choices, really. Here's the first choice, 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 that's not good. Here's the first choice. You can blame the father. A lot of people do that. God, I wouldn't be a slave if you hadn't given me the money. Wasn't that interesting? That same person, if God didn't give him the money, would have argued against God for not giving him the money. You see, we avoid responsibility and we do not repent from our false, false idols when we blame everything on other people, right? He could have, he could have said... He could have said, you know what, it's all those friends. I wasted my money partying and and squandered it, and they were with me. Why aren't they using their money to help me when I'm down and out? It's because they're addicted to false idols too. He could blame anyone, but instead, the son decided to see the father as good and run back to the father. By the way, there's a solution to idolatry right there. We have to see that God values us and approaches us even when we don't deserve to be approached. That's what's happening here. Sometimes we also worship the false god of perfectionism. By the way, I really want to hit this one hard because it is such a big issue in our culture. Sometimes we worship the false side of perfectionism and America is ripe with perfectionism. Not in the way you think. Let me describe this. The fastest growing religion in America is not Christianity. Statistically, the fastest growing religion in America is what we call nuns. Now, that'll spin you, that'll spin you for a loop. Because the nuns are the amount of people who are saying they have no religion. Let me say it again. The fastest growing Religion in America are those who say they have no religion. Why? Because everyone has a religion. Everyone is born in the, in the image of God, which by nature means that everybody seeks to fill a hole inside themselves. There are two tenets to this religion of nuns in America. Let me give them to you. Here's the first tenet. Man gets to decide what's right or wrong. And by the way, because of that, we're all being driven nuts. Man gets to decide what's right and wrong. And so what, what the nuns are basically saying is, I believe there may be a God, but really I don't care who it is because I'm God and I get to say what's right and wrong. <laughs> now this, this, this will drive you a little bit crazy. Now here's why it'll drive you crazy. Because if you approach someone and use the wrong pronoun, 
you didn't realize it was wrong to use the wrong pronoun. That now, now they're God suggesting what morality should be for you. You see, we can't get away from it. The truth is, is that we all are trying to force our right and wrong on each other. And, and what I would rather say is, um, let's look at what God says right and wrong and stick by that. And uh, um, so America, the nuns, they believe that they're setting what's right and wrong. Here's the second thing they're doing. They believe their good works are going to get them into heaven. They don't necessarily reject a heaven and hell. The nuns, right? The American nuns saying we're done with religion. We don't follow any religion, Christianity, Muslim, nothing. We're just done. They actually believe that good and bad works are going to weigh each other out. And if you do more good than bad, you're going to get into a better place when you die. And uh, by the way, this is nothing new, right? Every religion in the world, every false god in the world teaches that if your good outweighs your bad at the end of the day, God's going to, whatever God you serve is going to let you into heaven. And, and it's totally corrupt. What I mean is, it's totally anti-Bible and anti-reality. The reality is, is that our good works in God's eyes are like filthy rags. Isaiah 64, verse 5 God says this about all mankind. Listen to what he says. We are all like one who is unclean, and all our so-called righteous acts are like filthy rags. In Hebrew, the word filthy rags are that time of month rags, to be polite. That is literally the Hebrew words here. In God's eyes, when we try to do good things in order to please him, he looks at it and says, I'm having none of it. Why? Because... Our bad things are so bad that our good things can't make up for it. And God demands holiness. He demands perfection. Here's what's happening in our culture. What's happening in our culture is people are making up the rules on their own. They're telling you and I to conform to those rules. And if we don't conform to those rules, they call us evil. That is a system of religion. They're wanting you to do what they want you to do so that they can call you good so that they don't look at their evil and they put away their evil. Because the truth is they're conflicted. Young people, young adults, please don't get into this game. This uh, virtue showing, this showing that I'm righteous before man, don't even start it. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. None in God's eyes. So when people come to me and try to dictate to me that I'm not matching their morals, I'm going to simply point to Jesus. When they come to my closet and start pointing at the things in my past, I'm going to say Jesus has the key to my closet and he threw it away. And I think that's how we need to respond. But I want you to notice this, and, and this is the, the next thing that happens, really shows value here. We become what we worship. We become what we worship. And that's a true principle no matter what you worship. So if we worship a false god, we become like our false god. If we worship the one true God, we become like the one true God. Matter of fact, we find this in Romans chapter 12 verse 2. Paul says this. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, if we make the world our God, we will look like the world. But if we make the one true God our God, he will transform us into the image of his son. 
And so we have a choice there. And I want you to notice this. In this chapter, God tells Hosea to go find his wife and doesn't give his wife a name. Why didn't he tell, tell him to go find Gomer? Because Gomer is now defined as a prostitute because what she has done, she has become. In other words, I don't know if you know anything about the Canaanite Baal religion, and I'm going to keep this PG this morning, but you can use your imagination. In the Baal religion, he was a fertility god. And they would go to the temple to worship him, and there would be shrine prostitutes. And Baal would watch the engagement of his religious devotees, and they would think that he would release rain from heaven from doing so. Now, you can fill in the gaps. That's what they believed. So what happens in that type of religious system? Promiscuity. Rains. You, you give yourself away. You devalue yourself. You become a slave. And um, this is what was happening. By the way, this happens to us today. Okay, let's, there's a lot of things that we can do as Americans, but we can make a lot of things our God. Let me make some very, um, some ones that you would recognize really quickly. Let's say I chose to say I could not be happy without using marijuana. Now, I'm not commenting on whether it's uh, moral or not. Listen, it's a plant. It's amoral. It has no feelings. It has no morals. Um, I'm not suggesting that. I really don't care about that. What I'm saying is, let's say you said, I can't be happy without being high all the time, right? You're no longer called Pastor Jason. You are now Jason the... Thank you. I resent that comment. Well, let's say you take sex, and sex is a good thing. I mean, God made it. He doesn't blush at it, but he made it for the relationship of marriage. It's a good and sacred and holy thing. But let's say you take this and make it your God, and you say, I can't be happy unless I have sex all the time in many different ways. And, and you do that. It's no longer Pastor Jason. It's now Jason the... In the second service, someone said slut, and I couldn't preach anymore. I said, now I felt so dirty. Um, I said, no, it's pervert, man. <laughs> Give me a break. Uh, we, what we do is we define people by what they worship because they value themselves by what they worship. Or if I can't, if I can't live normally and be happy without alcohol, I'm no longer Jason the pastor, I'm Jason the alcoholic or drunk. Do you see? It cheapens us. And what God does is he shows up in the middle of us cheapening ourselves and says, you're a child of God. You were born in the image of God. I valued you. I redeemed you. I want you. That's what God does to us. And it's beautiful. He shows us value when we feel valueless. How does God deliver us from idolatry? He shows us value. How does God deliver us from idolatry? The second way God withholds intimacy as a warning signal. Now, I'm going to have to do a little bit of theological explanation here, but I do want you to know this, that we're different from Israel where he wrote this, but this still applies to us today. But God definitely withholds a certain presence of himself from us when we put false gods where he belongs. Just like in, in Homer a couple of years ago, my family and I, we went camping in Homer, 
And about 10 p.m. at night, a 7.2 earthquake struck off the Aleutian chain. And all of a sudden, there was a tsunami warning sign at 10 p.m. And it just, and so we got in our cars and we drove up to the bluff and we sat there in the parking lot, that overlooked parking lot for a while until it subsided and we went back down. Listen, if man is smart enough to create an early warning system for a tsunami, how much more smarter is God at creating an early system warning for us when we're committing idolatry? He does this for Christians. He does this for all people. Watch what he does here in verses um, 3 through 5. Notice how he does this, or verses 3 through 4. Notice how he does this. He says, so he sent Hosea to buy his wife. And then Hosea says this to his wife. Then he told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will behave the same way towards you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord, their God, and David, their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and his blessings in the last days. Now... I have to do a little explanation here because what I don't mean is, is that when you're a Christian, God withdraws a relationship with you and you, you lose your salvation. That's, that's not what I'm saying because there are distinct differences between Israel and us today. Here's the difference. They were under the old covenant when God was writing this. We're under the new covenant and everybody said, praise the Lord. And, and for them, there were consequences for them being disobedient like there are with us. But one of their consequences was is that God said in Deuteronomy 28, if you disobey me and worship other gods, I, I will cause the, the, the sky to seal up like copper so that it won't rain. You will, you will be, instead of lending to nations, you will, you will lend, to na- or lend from nations. Instead of being the he- head, you will be the tail. Um, when your armies come after you, you will part in seven ways and run away. And then at the very end of chapter 28, he says this, And if you continue to put other gods before me and worship other gods, I will bring a country to invade you, and they will take you away to be slaves. And we know, by the way, this is what God's talking about. I told you that chapter 3 is a summary of the entire book of Hosea. Well, in chapter 3, the very first verses, he tells Hosea to go get his wife who's in slavery. We find out in in Hosea chapter 9 that God is sending the Assyrian Empire to come enslave the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's 722 B.C. when that happened. You see, this whole thing is talking about God's relationship with Israel over the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament. And and listen, look at verse 4. He says, the Israelites will live many days without king or prince. And by implication in verse 5, they're going to live without me. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek their God. Now, when is this going to happen? It's going to happen in the last days. That's what the verse says. See, this still has yet to happen. God is going to gather Israel into the country of Israel. He's already been doing it. And then in the last day, Jesus is going to show up and they're going to look on on the one whom they pierced. That's Zechariah chapter 12 verse 4. And in that day, they will all turn back to God. But until that day, God has withheld a relationship from Israel. In a sense, look at verse 3. 
you are to live many days. You must not prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way with you. In the original Hebrew, this is, you will live many days, and you will be without a relationship with any man, and I will be without relationship with you in the sense of intimacy. That's what's happening here. So let me clarify, because Israel's different from us. We can't lose our relationship with God in the sense of our salvation. It's not happening. And I, and I know this because of the New Testament speaks. So once you, once you place your faith in Jesus Christ that he died and he was buried and he's forgiven you from your sins, once you believe in him, there's nothing that's going to separate you from God. I'm not talking about that. Um, by the way, there's a few verses that suggest this. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. For you were sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. It doesn't say you were sealed by the Holy Spirit until the next time you sinned. No, you're sealed to the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, which means, hey, if God's going to seal you, no one's breaking that seal. Well, there's another one. There's a more powerful one. There's several of these, by the way. In John chapter 10, when Jesus was talking about, I am the good shepherd, he, he says this in verse 27 through 29, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Let me ask you something. If uh, Sylvester Stallone, who played in Over the Top, the arm wrestling movie, Rambo, and a couple others, if he arm wrestled God in his peak physical condition, who wins? I know this is like the whole Superman-Batman argument, but like this is God. Who wins? Right. Have you ever done the, the thumb wrestle? You know, one, two, three, four, let's do a thumb. You, know, you should do it. It's fun. Happy. Have fun with your grandkids and kids and whatever. If, God is, if you're going to do a thumb war with God, who's going to win? God. And, and, and if God says that when you believe in me as your Savior, you're in my hand and no one can snatch you out of my hand, it does, listen, you think too highly of yourselves to think you can jump out. That's the point. You can't lose salvation. But <laughs> you got to be careful. Because salvation means you are going to persevere in the faith. You're going to see your faith out. So there's a balance here. But what does this mean that God gives us a warning system? And because he did with the Israelites, he's going to do it with us. I know there's at least a few things here. Um, and let me give you an example of this. Uh, husbands, God's kind of baked this into us. And we got to be careful about this. Did you realize that God gives you a warning system when you're mistreating your wife? Yeah, God actually won't hear your prayers and answer them when you're treating your wife in a way you shouldn't. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. I'm not going to explain that today. And as heirs with you the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Did you know, husbands, sometimes our prayers are hindered because we're mistreating our wife? That's a warning. We're meant to, to, to see that as a warning. And uh, he does this with our relationship with him, by the way. When we put a false god in between us and God, it's like taking the sun away from the earth. Nothing grows. Matter of fact, um, the first thing that will happen is that God will cause us not to be fruitful. 
The reason why I know this is because Jesus talks about, I am the vine in John chapter 15. I am the vine and you are the branches. Remain in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. You see, the question is, how's our fruit doing? Because being a Christian doesn't mean we're delivered from idolatry. It means now we have a choice. We're forgiven, but now we've got the flesh and the, and, and the spirit wrestling against each other, and we can put idols in our lives. And the question is, where's your fruit? Now, you, now, now you're asking, okay, what's fruit look like? Well, look no further than Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. For the fruit of the Spirit is joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And the question is, how are you doing in those areas? Are you gentle with people? Or do you fly off the handle at the very littlest thing? That'll show you what your relationship with God is like currently. Do you overreact when your kids do something? Do you do you react more harshly for something that doesn't fit that crime? It'll show idols in our life. Um, you know, ask me how I know after service. I don't have time to tell you, but I've got a lot of times where I was short with my kids and it wasn't necessary. And it absolutely undergirded something in my life that I was putting before God. Um, it, it causes us not to be fruitful. It's a warning system. Here's the second thing. God will cause us not to have peace. We won't have peace. You, you ever heard the term going postal? You know where that term came from? It came from a series of people in the 1980s and 1970s, and apparently they were all post workers. Not sure why, but the post workers would lose their job, and then they would go back to their work and harm people. That's the going post. So, so because I lose my job, I now harm people. That shows an idol. There's something there that's not functioning correctly. And my question to us is, where's our peace at? If God is God of the universe and you lose your job, God is still God of the... And he provides for us. And so um, we can have peace. How does God deliver us from idolatry. God shows us value when we feel valueless. God withholds intimacy as a wake-up call. And last but not least, how does God deliver us from idolatry? God shows us his goodness. I told you this is the key. This is really the key to the whole thing. If we want to be delivered from idolatry today, it would be how we view God and how we react to him. Notice here what happens. So in verse 2, we kind of skipped over it, but we're going to go back to it now. Notice what Hosea is commanded by God to do. Notice that he finds his wife, Gomer, enslaved, and he doesn't tell her to pay for herself. Matter of fact, he pays for her. Notice verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. Now, if you do your research, you're going to find out that a homer and a lethic of barley cost 15 shekels of silver. So he says, I, I took 15 shekels of silver, and then I brought this grain with me that is worth 15 shekels of silver. And um, I'm no mathematician. I have a hard time in this area. But after I struggled for a while, I added 15 plus 15, and I got, yeah, you're a little slow too. 
And I, and I got 30, and, and then I researched the 30, and like 30 sec- shekels of silver, what is this worth, like the value? And the first passage that came up was Exodus chapter 21, verse 34. And in that, God is commanding the Israelites and say, if you harm someone else's slave, you're supposed to give 30 shekels of silver to the person who owned the slave. So, the point is, 30 shekels of silver pays for a dead slave. What does that say about the person who has Gomer, his wife, as a slave? Doesn't care for her. But go deeper, my friends. Go much deeper. You know what this is saying? This is saying that we are all slaves to sin. This is saying that God is going to pay the price for our slavery to sin. Matter of fact, there's another person who was, who was sold for 30 shekels of silver. And his name is Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful picture of redemption. Because here's what God does to deliver us from idolatry. He doesn't find us in slavery and say, pay for yourself, work out through good works. You need to do better. He comes to us and says, I will pay the full price and now I purchased you and now you have a choice. Are you going to make me God yet or not? What a beautiful illustration. By the way, there's a story I want to close with here. I'll get to that in a second actually because I, I think I do need I do need to explain this because I think this is something as Americans we really struggle with. A lot of people do, but we struggle with this idea that God will allow us to be judged. Um, Well, the fact is this story is saying that we are a slave to ourself, that he wants to deliver us. So there's one thing there. But I want you to really think about this. How many people are news? You guys watch news a lot. Last week, there was an interesting thing in the news. Last week, in Russia, there was a warlord who decided uh, to go against the president of Russia and start going towards Moscow with 25,000 troops. Okay, what is that called? It's insurrection. There's another word for it. It starts with a T. It's treason. And, And I was fully expecting... This guy is going to be taken out. Why? Because if you turn against the leader of a country, it's treason and it's punishable by death. And in America, if there was a general in the Pentagon who decided to turn half the army against the president, what is that called? And in America, by law, if you commit treason, the punishment is death. And how much more so is it with God? When we willfully reject God because we don't agree with him, and then we create our own gods and lead everyone else in rebellion to reject God, what is that demand? Death. Treason. But see, God isn't man. Because he loves, God is love, 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. God is love, and because he's love, although we are treasonous against him, he comes to us and he pays the price for us. And that's what keeps us out of idolatry, just recognizing that in our lives over and over. Uh, Let me finish with this story. There was a kid named Winston in the early 20th century, and his family was very wealthy in Britain. You know, it's probably, it's Winston Churchill. His family was very 
wealthy, and, and uh, they would have parties often at their house and invite all their family and friends. And one party, the adults separated and the kids all played with each other, and without the adults knowing it, the kids went swimming. And during this time, uh, Winston uh, couldn't swim very well, and he started drowning, and all the kids started screaming. There was a gardener close by. And the gardener ran to the pool, jumped headfirst in, rescued Winston, and, and uh, got, him, got all the water out of him, and the parents showed up. And Winston Churchill's parents came to the gardener and said, thank you for saving our son. Is there anything that we can do for you within our means to, to just show our appreciation? And the gardener thought for a second, and then he said, you know what, I've, uh, I've got a son Who's, who's always talking about being a doctor, but I'm a gardener, I don't make that much. Could you help my son go to college and be a doctor? And they said, consider it done. And Winston Churchill's parents paid for that little kid when he grew up, paid for his college. Later on, Winston Churchill became the prime minister decades later of Britain. And at the end... Of his prime minister, he, uh, being prime minister, he developed a severe case of pneumonia and was hospitalized. Most people in those days died from pneumonia, but there was a doctor who developed and discovered penicillin. And that doctor came to Winston Churchill's room, and he administered the penicillin. Winston Churchill got better, and that doctor was the son of the gardener his parents paid for to go to college. Listen to what Winston Churchill said after this. Rarely has one man owed his life twice to the same person. <laughs> but Winston Churchill missed the bigger truth. All men owe their life twice to God. He created us. He gives us breath every day. He gives us food. He made us in his image. And then because we strayed away, he came and purchased us from the household of slavery and death to sin. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your goodness. You have been so good to us and you continue to do so. Lord, I pray when we start drifting from you, when we put idols of pleasure or success or money or whatever it is in between us and you, Lord God, we pray that you continue to woo us to yourself. Thank you for dealing gently with us, for paying the price for us. Remind us of your goodness, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that we live in a country where we're free. We pray, Lord God, please keep this country free. Thank you for the people who fought for it. And thank you, Lord God, for letting us be born here. We truly feel like we've hit the lottery. But Lord God, help us to be responsible with that as well. We thank you for today, Lord. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Hey, may, may God bless you, may he keep you, may he cause his face to shine upon you, turn his face to you and give you peace. Have a great 4th of July week and uh, find someone you don't know this morning, say hello, and we'll see you next week.